Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Signs and symbols are everywhere. To name a couple, pilots' wings signify their ability to fly planes. Navy SEALs earn a trident pin, signifying their new status. God's people have a sign as well. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this sermon entitled, When Faith Falters, He Will Hold Me Fast, which covers Genesis chapter 17. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Amen and good morning, Perimeter Church. Uh, This morning, uh, we're not in a part in a series. This is uh, a standalone sermon that is connected to nothing before and nothing after. And so I thought, just because who doesn't want to talk about this, I thought I'd talk about everyone's favorite subject, the subject of circumcision. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis, the very beginning of your Bibles in the chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I'm really serious. Uh, You're all going like, is this a joke? Like, he's really not going to do this, is he? I am doing it. And I know, I know that some of you are thinking, you know, I know my Bible. I know the story of the gospel. I know that this is a sign that God's people are no longer supposed to embrace. And, And I would say to you, you're right. But that does not mean that this text does not speak to you and to me in Jesus Christ. Because here's what Jesus and the Apostle Paul say. If you don't understand what is happening here in the story of Abraham, you do not understand the fullness of the gospel. Because what you have received in Jesus, it is the fulfillment of promises made here to this man at this time. Which means if you're in Christ, your story is this is where it begins. And so today we're going to be looking at Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14, but we're just going to read the first four before we start. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant, my covenant is with you, and you, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would take this text, Lord, and the truth that it contains, and you, through your spirit, would open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts to you. Lord, you're a God who's more eager to meet with us than we are eager to meet with you. And we pray, show us the heights and the depths and the links and the widths of your love in Christ this morning. Do it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I think about the story of Abraham in Genesis 17, I'm reminded of a story I read in one of Walter Isaacson's books about this man named Ron Wayne. Wayne was, in the 1970s, a partner in a three-person team in this small little startup company And he had a 10% stake in this company. They had a great product. It was something that he thought had a lot of potential. His partners were geniuses. They were guys that he trusted, and he thought that they could probably make this thing work. But as they started moving forward, Ron Wayne started getting cold feet. Because while he could see the potential reward that might come if this company took off, he also saw the possible costs, the things that, it might, that might go wrong, the things that might cost him. And so Ron Wayne did something at the time seemed really sensible. He took his 10% stake, and he sold it for $2,300. And then he walked away. 
And it would be a story that would have been recorded nowhere and no one would have ever thought about again except for this one significant detail. That company, that company that he sold his 10% share for for $2,300, that was Apple. And that $2,300 stake in 2013, it would have been worth $40 billion. And he missed it. He missed it because in the moment, in the moment, he had nothing to hold him fast. He had nothing to assure him that the promise was certain. And so he missed. He missed the $40 billion reward. Something similar is happening in Genesis 17. God has come to Abraham, this man out of the land of Ur, and he said, you are the one, you are the one that somehow through you I'm going to redeem everything that has been broken by sin. I'm going to bless you so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed, and I'm going to give you a 75-year-old man with a wife who can't produce children, I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, I'm going to give you offspring that will outnumber the stars. And Abraham, he hears these promises, and it says in Genesis 15 that he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. A verse that shows up later in Romans 4 in reference to our belief in Jesus and our justification by faith. But when we get to Genesis 17, that faith, that faith that was counted to Abraham as righteousness, that faith is beginning to falter. 24 years have passed. 24 years have gone by since Abram heard that promise from the Lord and Abram left the land. And while God has blessed him, while God has kept him safe and God has given him provision, God has still not given him the one thing upon which the whole promise hinges, the son. The son that was supposed to be born to him and his wife, Sarai. He has one child, a child named Ishmael who was born of his servant Hagar, but 13 years have passed between the birth of that child and Genesis 17. And every year that passes, it becomes clearer and clearer that while he may have a son now, it's not the one that God promised. Because that was a child born not of faith, but instead of the flesh. And Abram is looking around at his world, and he is realizing that the problems that faced him when God first called him, those promises, they're even more acute. Those problems are more acute now. He's not 75, he's 99. His wife, who is already old, she is older still, and she's still just as barren. And he has sitting in his household, in this 13-year-old boy named Ishmael, a living, breathing embodiment of his failure to trust the Lord with the promise. And Abram, staring at all those things, Abram's faith that God is actually going to do what he promised to do, it begins to falter. And you see it in this. God, in Genesis 17, he gives these promises to Abraham. And then he follows them by saying, I'm going to give you a son named Isaac through your wife Sarai, and here is Abram's response. He laughs. He laughs not because he's mocking God, he laughs in sadness because he cannot fathom something like that possibly happening, and he says to the God who makes him the promise, don't you see how old I am? Just use Ishmael. Because there's no way that you could create a child like that for me. 
And here's the tenderness of God. Because I think that's the only way to describe what you see in this text. God in his tenderness, he looks at this man whose faith is faltering. And he takes him by the shoulders and he picks him up and he places his feet on the only certain ground that exists in this uncertain world and he places our feet there with him himself. The God who doesn't leave his people to their own devices, but who holds them fast in Jesus Christ. A God who gives us not an uncertain promise, but a certain one. Because before anything else, it's a promise rooted in his person. Look at what God says in verse 1. God comes to this man of faltering faith, and the very first words out of God's mouth are not, walk before me and be blameless. It's not buck up. It's not, why don't you believe me? You haven't trusted me. You failed me. What does God do? God shows up, and the very first thing he says to Abram, the thing he knows Abram needs to hear more than anything else in the world, it's this, I am God Almighty. Now that is not a means, that's not a name that God has ever used for himself before. That's the first time in all the Bible that God uses this phrase to describe himself. And God comes to this man who is doubting God's ability, who is doubting that he could possibly fulfill the promise, and God says, here's what you need to know. You need to know who I am. I'm not a God like the idols of the land. I'm not a God like they worship in Canaan. I'm the God who has all power in heaven and on earth. And first, you need to know this. I am the God of grace. You know, we have this idea that God, he wants perfect, put together, buttoned up people. People whose lives where they've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. Genesis 17 says that is complete and utter nonsense. Because if God was looking for somebody whose life was together, who was buttoned up and had crossed their T's and dotted their I's, Abram, Abram's not the guy you choose. I mean, if you just look around the world in Abram's day, there are all sorts of other options that make a lot more sense. Uh, Abram is not a priest of the Most High like Melchizedek, a man that Abraham encounters, a man of such worth that Abraham actually offers him tithes. Abram's not described as righteous or blameless when God calls him, something that the book of Job uses to describe Job, a man who lives at the same time as Abram. What are we told about Abram when God calls him? Three things. He's from Ur the Chaldeans, which means he's a pagan. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. Two, he's old. He's 75 years old. Three, he has a wife who is beautiful, but a wife who cannot do the one thing that gives a woman value in the ancient Near East. She cannot produce a child. If you're looking for someone through whom their offspring you're going to redeem the world, this is not the dude. There are all sorts of other people that you could go for, and God, in his mercy and in his grace, because it's who he is, God looks at Abram and says, that's the one. The unlikeliest man from the unlikeliest of places, that is the one I'm making my promise to. And then you look at Abram's life, and you see this man, he responds in faith, but if you've read this story, you know this is not perfect faith. God calls him to leave the land of Ur, to leave behind his father's house, but who travels with him for the very part, first part of the story? His father. He tells him to leave behind his kindred. Who else comes with him? His nephew, Lot. 
He tells him that he's going to provide for him and care for him, and yet, what does Abram do any time his life is threatened because he thinks somebody might want to steal his wife? He just gives his wife to them and pretends it's his sister. Not once, but twice. If he shows up at my door and asks to marry one of my daughters, I'm going to slam the door in his face. This is not the resume of the guy who's supposed to be the one through whom God redeems the world. This is a broken, screwed up man, and yet what does God do? God doesn't just call Abram. God, in Genesis 17, he comes back. And he says to this man who has doubted his promise, verse 4, my covenant is with you. I loved you before you ever loved me, and I love you still. This is the beauty of the God of the Bible. This is a God who loves broken, screwed up, messed up, sinful people. You see it in Jesus. Jesus in the Gospels, how's he described? He's a friend of sinners. He's the one who eats and drinks with tax collectors and prostitutes and does it so often that all the people start to kind of wonder about him and think maybe he has more in common with him than we might think. He's the one who came into this world, Paul says, with just one purpose, and that was this, to save sinners. The God who's speaking to Abram, the God who makes his promise to us in Christ, it's a God of grace. You don't earn his favor, you don't earn his love, he gives it freely. And not only that, but he's a God of power who makes even the barren fruitful. When I was a kid, I was really, really short. Uh, and when I say that, I'm not joking. I was under five foot until my freshman year of high school. And uh, my dream, my dream was to break six foot. I thought, if I can just do this, that's a good, solid, round number. I'm going to feel really accomplished if I get to six foot. And for a little bit, it looked like I might make it. I had 11 inches of growth between my freshman and sophomore year, which is pretty rapid. And then everything stopped. And now, I'm an almost 35-year-old man who is reminded every time he walks into a convenience store that I'm 5 foot 11 and a half and not an inch taller. And what I know, the little bit I know about medicine, is that the direction I'm going, it's not up, it's probably down at this point. Inches are going to be scratched off my driver's license, not added. I've reached a limit. I've reached something that it is not possible for me to move past. Abram, Abram's facing the same thing. He's a 99-year-old man with a 90-year-old wife. I don't say this to be crass, but that, that's when you prepare to die, not make a baby. Abram isn't living in the modern world where there's fertility clinics and fertility drugs and in vitro fertilization and surrogate mothers. He's living in a world where he has access to absolutely none of those things. I mean, even, even if Abram walked into a fertility clinic today, can you imagine what the doctor would do if a 99-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife sat down in, his, in his, one of his waiting rooms and said, you know what, we'd really like to have a son and think you can help us, that doctor is going to probably stumble through their words for a little bit and then say, look, we're really sorry, but that's just not going to happen. There was a time when maybe, but now, there's a limit. Abram knows it. There's a reason after this text, when God says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarai, there's a reason he goes, just use Ishmael. He knows it. 
he and his wife, their bodies may still have heartbeats, but when it comes to making babies, they're as good as dead. It's impossible. And God, God says to Abraham, you are absolutely right, it's impossible for you, but not for God Almighty. You know, there's a reason, there's a reason the Apostles' Creed starts with these words, I believe in who? God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Because the only way you believe promises as impossible as the gospel is if you know the identity of the one who is making the promise. And that God, he starts dropping those gospel promises like bombs on Abram. Look at what he says in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father, you, a man with a barren wife who's 99 years old. You shall be the father, not just of one child, but of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of multitudes, which is basically going to do one of two things. Anytime he hears his name, he's either going to feel like he's being mocked or God is going to have to fulfill that promise. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, the thing that I called Adam to do in the garden. As the one who bore my image to bring my rule and reign to bear in creation and to bring the flourishing that I desire everywhere that he goes, that's what I'm going to do through you. And I'm not just going to make you fruitful, I'm going to make you exceedingly so. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting, never-to-be-revoked covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The communion and the peace and the joy and the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden, where God was their God and they were his people, God says, Abram, that's what I'm going to do through you again. And I will give to you, note the to you, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He looks at Abram and he says, you know how I told you earlier that you were going to die before your offspring ever inherited this land? How it was going to be four generations after your death that they would finally come back and they would conquer the people here and I would give it to them? Somehow, mysteriously, I'm still giving it to you. Which means what? The story of God's people, it doesn't end in death. It ends in the resurrection from the dead. In a moment when our bodies will leave the grave and the inheritance that God has promised that maybe in this life we died before we experience it, on that day we'll have it in full. These are impossible promises. And yet here's the beauty of the gospel. Those are promises. Promises made not just to Abram, but promises that God in Jesus Christ makes to you and to me and to everyone who believes. In Galatians 3, Paul says Jesus, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham in whom all of these promises are fulfilled. Jesus is the one who says to you and I, who are not a part of the nation of Israel by birth, who says to you and to me, you can be heirs of this promise, you have only to come to me. Because I'm the one who bore the curse for Adam's sin. So that the peace and the fellowship with God that he lost, you could have again in full. 
I'm the one who says to those who are not just physically barren, but spiritually barren, I'm the one who says to you, come to me and I will make you not just fruitful, but exceedingly so through my spirit. I'm the one who though you are from many tribes and languages and people and tongue, I'm the one who brings you into one new family. The family of God, the true children of Abraham who were heirs of this promise by my sacrifice on the cross. And I'm the one. I'm the one who will give you an inheritance that's not less than Canaan, but actually it's a whole lot more. A new heavens and a new earth a world remade and restored and flooded with the glory of God where my resurrected people will reign in glory. God in Jesus, he says to you what he said to Abram, my covenant is with you. God Almighty, he has called and promised to save you. You know, we are so tempted, we are so tempted sometimes to look around at this world, to look at our families, to look at our hearts, and to think there's no way God could redeem this. How could God redeem the death of my friend? How could God redeem the loss of my child? How could God redeem someone whose sin is so deep and so broken? And what God would say to you in Genesis 17 is here is the antidote to faltering faith. It's not to look at the world around you. It's not to look at your own heart. It's not to look at your own life. It is to look at one person and one person only, and that is God Almighty revealed in Jesus Christ. The God of grace and the God of power who saves his people and saves them to the uttermost, who loved them before they ever loved him in return. The God of the Bible, he's giving you a promise that isn't rooted in you and what you can do. It's a promise that is rooted in the one thing that is certain in this uncertain world, and that's himself. And he doesn't stop there. He takes that promise, and he seals it with covenant sign. You know, if you've ever wanted to know why baptism is significant in the life of the church, all you have to do is look at Genesis 17. Look at what God says in verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male Throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You know, whenever God makes a promise, when he covenants with his people, always you see him add a sign. After the flood, when he promises not to flood the world again, what does God do? He gives a rainbow, a seal of the promise that he has made, this thing, this physical, tangible thing that confirmed to God's people that what he had promised to do, he would surely do. 
You see God do that right here. God comes to his people and he gives them this sign. This sign that sets them apart in the world. A sign that is not just for those who presently believe, but it is also for their children generation after generation after generation. Because this covenant, it's not a temporal one, it's an eternal one. A covenant that is not just for Abram, but for his children. And God gives this sign to set them apart. And it's a sign that chiefly does two things. The first is simply this. It's a sign that assures God's people. It confirms to them that the promise that God has made, not only is it true, but it is for you. You know, we have this idea in American evangelicalism that when you look at the sacraments, things like baptism and the Lord's table, and even back here at circumcision, that these are things that are primarily an expression of your faith. I think that is an incredibly unhelpful vision of the sacraments. And I'll tell you why. It's a part of it, but that is not the primary purpose. Why does God give Abram the sign of circumcision? It's not so he can express his faith. Why does he give it to him? In Romans 4, verse 11, it says that God gave him the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had received by faith back in Genesis 15. Now just pause on that for a second. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to know that the righteousness that I have declared, that righteousness that is not yours, but I am giving to you, that it is really and truly yours. I want to confirm it to you. In the same way that when you get married, you have to go get a notary and that stamp that says, this is authentic and this is true. In verse 13, he says that this, this sign that's cut into your flesh, it symbolizes an everlasting covenant. It's a sign cut into flesh that perishes that symbolizes a promise that never does. God is saying to Abram, I am giving you a gift, not to express your faith, but to be received by faith, a gift that assures you that you are really and truly mine. Look at when he gives it to him. He doesn't give it to him back in Genesis 15 when he's first counted righteous because of his faith. When does he give it to him? Almost 20 years later at the moment when his faith is threatening to fail. And God says, this isn't just for you. I want every generation after you to receive this sign so that they would grow up knowing they are those to whom I have made promises. And those promises are true. And not only that, those promises, they are for them. And do not miss this. God doesn't just offer the sign. He commands him to take it. You know, if you have ever been a parent, you know there's moments when you've got sick children and you have to force them to take the medicine that they need. You've got that little syringe filled with that weird goop that they call children's medicine and you're trying to put it in their mouth, and they really don't want it, so they're kicking and they're wriggling, and you are wanting to do this for them because you love them, but the kid just won't receive it. In that moment, you know, as a parent, you don't just go, well, I offered it to you, and walk away. What do you do? You command them to take it. You say, I love you, and you need this. This isn't something that you can do without. I care for you and your well-being, and I know that this is something that will nourish you and feed you and provide for you and heal you, and God here. God's saying, I'm giving you something like that. 
This isn't just a sign that you could use if you want to. This is the medicine you need because I created you as physical embodied creatures who need physical signs of invisible grace to assure your weak and wavering hearts that you are really and truly mine. And that gift, that's a gift that we've received in baptism. You know, we know that we don't use the sign of circumcision anymore because the one to whom circumcision pointed, he's coming, Jesus. Jesus is the one who was cut off for us, who shed his blood that we would never have to. And so what we receive now, it's the washing with water. I mean, just think about the sign for a second. What is baptism most often referred to? What is most often compared to when you're reading the scriptures? The forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. 1 Peter 3, verse 21, look at what it says. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On its own, if you're just taking water and pouring it on somebody or you're just dunking them into a tub... That means absolutely nothing. But when it's attached to the promise, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the God who has purchased your redemption by the death and resurrection of His Son Jesus, and it's received by faith, it becomes a seal to wavering consciences overwhelmed by their sin that that forgiveness that death proclaims, it's really and truly yours. One of my favorite stories is the story of Martin Luther. And if you don't know who Luther is, he was one of the, the, he was the guy that started the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. But Luther was a man who grappled constantly with guilt. He would hear these voices in his own conscience, and he would hear the voice of Satan just whispering to him that God could not love him, that he could not be forgiven. And in moments when it felt like his faith was about to be overwhelmed, Luther, he would take out his penknife, and he would carve into the side of his desk, I have been baptized. I belong to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one who loved me and gave himself for me, who has sealed me to himself through his spirit and has given me a physical, tangible sign to seal to my conscience that I am really his. And though every other voice in the world screams out at me that he could not love me and I am not forgiven, I know that he is the one who tells the truth, though every man be a liar. It's assurance. And I don't want us to miss this. God gives that gift not only to those who believe, to their children. Now I know, I know that that's not necessarily what a lot of people in the church at large believe, but that's our conviction here at Perimeter. We're convinced that this is what the scripture teaches. Because while the sign has changed, the promise, the promise hasn't. The same promise that came to Abraham, that's the promise that's given to you. And when that promise is spoken of, it's spoken of as applying not just to those who believe, but also to their children. Think back to Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching to a crowd of thousands of Jewish men and women, and what does he say to them? To people who all their lives have grown up with the covenant of Abraham and the sign of circumcision, which is applied to their children. What does he say? 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, the same words we just read in Genesis 17. For the promise, the one made to Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now catch that. Peter just said the promise to Abraham It hasn't gotten more restrictive, it's gotten more expansive. It doesn't just apply to you and your children, but to those who are Gentiles and those who are female and those who maybe before would never have received the sign. That promise, it has now been opened wide to them. And God, if that's the case, that means the sign, though it's changed in its form, it doesn't change in the terms of its application. Which means that our children, my little girls, They get to grow up knowing that they have been baptized under the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for this reason, because the promises that God made to me in Christ, those are promises he has made to them too. They get to grow up just like the young Israelites going, we are those to whom God has made precious, glorious, world-transforming promises. But do not miss this. The sign, it does not confer its benefits unless it's received by faith. It's not just a call that assures, a sign that assures. It's a sign that calls. It demands a response. In verse 14, God says, if someone refuses to be circumcised, you are to put them out of your household. You are to send them packing, kick them out, which sounds really harsh until you realize this. There is such a close alignment between the sign and the promise being made that to reject one is to reject the other. And even more than that, to have the sign and then to not embrace the sign from the heart, that is just as much a rejection as it is to refuse the sign. Because what you're seeing in circumcision, it is a visible representation of what you have from God's lips in verse 1. What does it say? I am God Almighty. I am the one making these promises. I set the terms of the covenant. I have loved you. I will save you. I will redeem you. I'll provide for you. Walk before me and be blameless. Receive this by faith and then live the life of faith in obedience to me all your days. Give me your heart. And what is the thing that Israel over and over fails to do? According to the prophets, It's that they were circumcised in their flesh. They had the external sign, but they were not circumcised in their hearts. They did not respond with the faith that God called for. And they lost. They lost the blessing. That same warnings in baptism. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to a church that's all kinds of jacked up. A church just like ours. Where you have a bunch of people who love Jesus, they've heard the promise, they believe the promise, they've been baptized into Jesus, they are taking the Lord's table together, but then you start looking at this church and there's sin just all over the place. There's a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, there's people fighting with each other, everything is messed up and turned on its head. And Paul is writing to this church and saying, you are in danger. Because if you do not persevere in the faith, if you do not hold fast, if you don't live in a way that befits the promise that you've given, that reflects true faith, then you do not have any confidence that you are actually a part of God's own people. 
And he uses this illustration from the life of the people of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, look at the people of Israel that were freed from slavery in Egypt. And he says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the sea and all passed through the sea. And all, notice this, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is not a proof text, but I do want to call attention to this because it fits the pattern that I think is all over the Bible. When God's people walked through the Red Sea, did they leave their children behind? No. They carried their children with them because the promise of redemption wasn't just for them, it was for their children. And their children experienced a grace that they did not yet understand, even as the adults who are about to make plain, they don't understand either. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul says... They shared in baptism even as you do. They were baptized into the Redeemer that we now have in Christ, and they saw a picture of in Moses. They, they drank of the food, they drank, they drank of the, the water, and they ate from the spiritual food that was Christ. They had real grace conferred to them, but what was the problem? God's people didn't give them their hearts. They didn't receive the promise by faith. They took all that grace that God gave them and they hardened their hearts and they turned their backs and they lost the blessing. I don't want you to miss this. It doesn't matter if you were baptized as a kid or you were baptized as an adult. This is a reality. If the promise of the gospel that is conferred and communicated through that sign is not embraced through faith and overflows in a lifestyle of obedience by virtue of that faith. What the teach, Scripture teaches you is that baptism, it guarantees you nothing. It does not save you. Because it calls. It calls for every single thing that you are. And the one who was calling from that text is the same one who was calling to Abram back in Genesis 17. It's the God who saves through one person and one person alone, and that's Jesus. You may have resisted that sign all your life. You may have been running from its implications with every single thing that you are, but do not miss the one who calls to you from that sign. The one maybe that you have fought with everything you have. It's Jesus, the God of grace and power who spoke to Abram and said, I don't care that you're barren. I don't care that you are physically more dead than alive. I don't care that all you have to offer me is your sin. Because I am the one. I'm the one who makes all things new. Come to me with your weakness and I will make you strong. Come to me with your sin and I will wash you clean. Come to me with your barrenness and I will make you not just fruitful but exceedingly so. Because this promise, it is rooted in my person and sealed by my covenant sign. We live in a world 
We're just like Abraham. We wait. And we wait. And we wait. And there are times where we wonder if we could stand waiting anymore. But here's our hope. God has not left us like Ron Wayne. This is the God, this is the God who holds us fast. The God who has given us the one certain thing in this uncertain world, and that's himself. God Almighty, he has rooted the promise in his own person, and he has sealed it with his covenant sign so that you and I, we could hold fast because he is the one who in Jesus holds us fast and will never let us go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a God who provides not just in part but in abundance. Lord, a God who cares for weak and needy people and gives us this incredible gift in the gospel. Lord, these, these promises that overturn this broken world and save broken people just like us. And we pray, Lord, that you would take those and seal them to our consciences and to our lives. Draw our hearts. May we be yours in full. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.